Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me tonight to Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <laughs> you can turn to Ephesians if you want to. <laughs> but 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're seeing the Apostle Paul, he's been talking to them for three chapters, but he's beginning to get a little bit more narrowed in the things that he says. He's, he's really being direct in what we're going to see tonight. As a matter of fact, I want to entitle the message, The Characteristics of a Conceited Church. The Characteristics of a Conceited Church. The Church of Corinth was a conceited church. Now we'll see that tonight. He tells them, those, those believers at Corinth who had been assessing pastors and evaluating them and then attaching themselves to men and not the message. And he tells them, says, now listen to me. If you want to evaluate a preacher, there's only one way. Boy, he really gets stern here. And in verses 1 through 4, he tells them, first of all, he says, is he fulfilling his responsibility of being a servant to Christ by being a steward of his word? Look again at verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is so important. They had all kinds of ways of evaluating Paul and then the second pastor, Apollos. But he says, hey, if you're going to evaluate, here's the standard. Let a man regard us in this manner, he says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, it's, it's according to how the individual loves, appreciates, studies, and teaches the Word of God. That's the first priority of a called preacher of God is that he loves God's word. And so he says, if you're going to evaluate him, if you're going to evaluate me, if you're going to evaluate Apollos, Paul says, you evaluate us according to that responsibility God has given. And the second thing he says in verse 2, is he fulfilling his, re his requirement of being faithful to that task? You see, it's one thing to do it once in a while, but there's a consistency of this. Every time you experience hearing him, every time you're around him, is he honoring the word of God? Is it thus saith the Lord? He says in verse 2, in this case, and he ties the two verses together. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The word trustworthy means somebody you can put your confidence in. And the only reason you could put your confidence in Paul and Apollos is because they put their confidence into the Word of God. That was the key. And so you evaluate them according to that responsibility of preaching and teaching the Word, but you also evaluate them by the requirement that that's all that they should be consistent in. When you see them, that one area of consistency should always stand out. And then thirdly, 
you evaluate them on the basis that their only reward they want is not from man, but from God. They're not seeking to please man, they're seeking to please God. In verse 3, he says, but for, to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, I do not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself. You know, it's amazing. If he had have examined himself, he really couldn't think of anything. That's how quickly we can deceive ourselves. He says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. And that word acquitted we looked at today is an uh-oh verb. The kai-o-o. And the verb means not just to be declared righteous, but to be proven to be righteous. And he says, what you say about me does not prove me to be righteous. What I think of myself does not prove me to be righteous. But God approves me to be righteous. And that, that is the reward I'm looking for. But the one who examines me, he says, is the Lord. And so he tells him, if you're going to evaluate a pastor, a preacher of God's word, a called preacher of God's word, these are the guidelines that you go by. Not the ones you're using but here are the guidelines that, that God would have you to know. This is how you evaluate a preacher. Well, based on the fact that they thought they had it all together and they were judging Paul against Apollos, against Cephas, he says in verse 5, and we didn't really get to that this morning, he says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And Paul says, now listen to me. It's God who judges. It's God who rewards. That's his role. Therefore, he says, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Now, he's referring to the judgments again that they're passing upon Paul and Apollos. And folks, we said it this morning, but I want to make sure you get into the feel of this. People still do that in the 20th century. They have their little standards that they judge a preacher by. Does he visit enough? Does he show compassion? Is he, is, what's his personality like? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Corinthians were doing that. And the Apostle Paul says, you stop doing that. That's not your role. This is God's role. As a matter of fact, the time there is defined by the next phrase. He says, and he says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What time? Keep reading. But wait until the Lord comes. You see, it's only the judgment of God that counts. It's the only judgment of God that's valid. And he says, whatever you're coming up with to put me over here against Apollos and both of us against Cephas, you stop doing that. Because only God is the one worthy to judge. And he's coming to do that. So you back off. You see, and then he goes on to say, Matter of fact, before I even go on, verse 13, we've seen this judgment, haven't we? Go back up to verse 13 of chapter 3. This is the judgment we've already looked at. And he, bring, he reminds them of this. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Now that's the time, the day, when Jesus comes. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test not the quantity of a man's work, but the quality of a man's work. So with this in mind, now Paul goes on. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Now look what he'll do when he comes. Who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. You see, God and God alone knows the motives of men's hearts. We, we, we found that out back in chapter 2. No man knows the thoughts of a man, certainly the motives of a man, except the man himself. The word therefore 
Uh, motives is the word voulé. It's the word that has the idea of the counsel of a man's heart. Something that he sat down and reflected upon that determined his purposes and his motivation and his agenda. Why does he do what he does? And only God knows that. And he says, you don't know that, therefore back off. When God comes, all of these things will be revealed. The word for uh, will bring light to is spotizo. It means to turn the light on. One of these days he'll come. He'll turn the light on. Don't worry. God will take care of that. And the word for disclose the motives of men's hearts is the word fanero. In other words, he will manifest them at one time. How will they be manifested? Hey, you can tell by what's left, whether it's wood, hay, and stubble, if it's going to burn, or the precious stones that are going to be left. There won't be any questions about the motivation of a man's heart one day when he stands before God. It will be at this time that the rewards will be given. And a, and a preacher, a called preacher of God's Word, this is what he wants, is God's approval and those rewards. He doesn't want just the acclamation of men. That's not what he's looking for. So he says in the verse, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Now that is what we all want. That's what a preacher wants that's called of God. So therefore, back away from this judging the motives of a preacher's heart. Stop saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Stop excluding oneself. Stop thinking you have the standard and nobody else has it. The bottom line is, and I'm serious, if you look carefully what he's doing, the bottom line is, who in the world do you think you are to judge the motives of God's called preachers of his Word. Well, the Corinthian church was rather conceited, rather arrogant. They thought they had the standard. Matter of fact, that's been their problem all along. Babies that wouldn't grow up in the nursery. And what we're going to start seeing here in verse 6 to me is very, very important. We're going to see a stark contrast between a conceited church and the humility of the apostles that God had sent to them. The people that God was using and the people that would not allow God to use them. And they're going to stand out. It's just, it's the most tremendous, con not good in the sense of tremendous, but it's just as clear as a bell. The conceited Corinthian church and the humble apostles that God had sent to them. And you're not going to see much of that tonight on the humble side. We're only going to look at the, the conceited church of Corinth. But I want to go ahead and introduce it to you. The word humility is never used but it's implied in everything that you, that you can see. Whereas the Corinthians, they walked away from the Word of God. They wouldn't grow in the Word of God. They came up with their own standards. The apostles, in, in, on the other hand, never even thought of themselves as worth anything. They knew they were only vessels. They knew the sin of their body. They knew everything about themselves that they were not apart from God. And they lived in that humility, that proper estimate of themselves in light of who God is. And if you'll think about it for a second, everybody that God has ever used is characterized not by conceit, but by humility. And I want to remind you of some people that God has used down through the Scriptures. When Abraham was in interceding on behalf of Sodom, he said in Genesis 18 and verse 27, And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust. And ashes. Jacob, when he was afraid that Esau was going to attack him, prayed in Genesis 32:10. He says, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness 
and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. When God commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh and demand the release of the Israelites, Moses said in Exodus 3 and verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? When John the Baptist could not conceive of baptizing Christ, he said, but John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And John in his gospel records a record of the words of John the Baptist when he said, John answered him saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Peter, when seeing the miracle of the great catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee and realizing that he was in the presence of God, made the statement in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And the apostle Paul was no exception. It says in Acts 20 verse 19 of Paul that he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon him through the plots of the Jews. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. For our adequacy is from God. And in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Whenever you find a person who is being used as a vessel for God, you're going to find a marked characteristic of humility. But every time you find somebody who's unwilling to grow up, unwilling to get up under the authority of God's Word. And even though they go through the motions day by day, you're going to find conceit and arrogance and they're going to stand in a stark contrast to one another. All this humility of Paul and Apollos and Cephas that are mentioned back in verse 12 of chapter 1 and then followed through the three chapters that we've studied, all that humility now is going to stand up against the stark conceit and arrogance of the Corinthian church. They were, again, babies that wouldn't grow up. They wouldn't come out of the nursery. They had their own standards. They had arrived. They needed no one. And there are three characteristics of a conceited church. And since the people make up the church, remember that little thing? Here's the church and, let's see, I did it this way. <laughs> Here's the church and here's the steeple <laughs> and open it up and there's the people. When you talk about the church, you're talking about individuals. So the same characteristic that applies to the church applies to an individual. Characteristics of a conceited church or a conceited individual, we're going to see three of them tonight. And I want to tell you, Paul minces no words and drives his point home. First of all, a conceited church is indifferent to the Word of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Following right on the heels of chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, now we're going to see people that are indifferent to the Word of God. When he talks about preachers that have preached the Word of God and loved the Word of God and are stewards of it, now he's talking about people who don't want to hear it, that are indifferent to the Word of God. In fact, those churches, by the way, are many times found in America in the 20th century. I pastored a church once, and I had a deacon walk up to me and he said, Wayne, why do you talk about the Word all the time? 
It's 2,000 years old. You think they don't exist, folks? They exist everywhere. And as we go through this, think about now how many Corinthian churches, matter of fact, I passed one not long ago, and it says the church of Corinth and in a little city. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Don't put that on your sign. I wonder if anybody thinks when they do that. What do you mean, the church of Corinth? I said, what, it's the last place I'd want to go, that's for sure. But let's look at it. In verse 6, the indifference to God's word comes out. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. There you go, right there, exceeding what is written. In order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now when he refers to these things, that throws me a little bit. I think he's talking about verses 1 through 5 particularly verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. However, you noticed back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, some of you are of, of, of Paul, some of you are of Apollos, and then he says, some of you are of Cephas, some of you are of Christ. That's the tough group. And then he drops off the last two, and he picks up on Apollos and Paul and follows that the rest of the way. So it could be that you could go back to when he does that and pick up the traits that he's trying to speak of here. But to me, to stick right into the text, He's speaking of those things, those characteristics of the God-called preachers that he talked about in verses 1 through 4. He says, these things I have figuratively applied to me and Apollos. Now, that word I have figuratively applied caught my attention. Now, sometimes when I'm studying, a word will grab me, and I'll start explaining it, and you'll lose the whole track of where I'm going. I don't want that to happen. However, you need to know this word. <laughs> it's a good word. It's the word meta, M-E-T-A, if you want to write it down, and then put the second word there, schematizo, <laughs> if I said it right. It comes from the word schema, meta, denoting change of place or condition. And the word schematizo, which is from schema or schema, meaning shape or form. Now, what's the, what is he saying here? Something that changes the outward form of something. Not the inward, the outward. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm just changing forms. I'm not changing the meaning. Nothing inward changes. I'm just changing the forms. I, usually, I gave you the example, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now, that applies to myself in Apollos. I've, I've figuratively applied it to us. And there's a reason that he's doing that. But the thing I want you to see in it, it's just a total for what it's worth department. There's another word that means to be changed from within. That's metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis from. Now, do you know that when you die, and you go through that transition of death, and one day we get a glorified body, which word is used? Which word would you think would be used? It's not the word metamorpho. It's this word right here. There's only going to be an outward change. It's just going to be a transition from here to there because we're being changed inwardly constantly, aren't we? Being from glory to glory, from faith to faith, and something that you, and it's really a sweet thought. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in this whole place that thinks it is. But when I was studying, that really hit me that when you die, it's just a transitioning. And the only thing that changes is the outside. He's already come to live inside of us. He's already transformed me inside. He just simply going to transition me. So today, I'm being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And one day, I'll get the body to go along with it. And we'll just go right on together. It shouldn't be that big a drastic thing. And I don't know, it just blessed me. Some of you sounds like it might even have blessed you. I'm glad. Well, Paul is saying that he and Apollos were given to the church that there might be a pattern to follow. 
And he says, now, now remember who Paul is. He's the first pastor of the church. Remember who Apollos is? He's the second pastor of the church. And he says, I, see, I zeroed in on me and Apollos because I think there's a pattern here that you need to follow. There's something about us you need to learn. What's that? Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn, now watch, not to exceed that which is written. Now, what in the world is he talking about? All right, let me see if I can help you. You see, God's written word tells us to appreciate God's called preachers. In fact, it gives us the boundaries within which we can appreciate them. But you cannot go and exceed what is written. Let me just show you that. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. We are to appreciate and encourage, and we are to regard the people that preach and teach the word of God, whoever they may be. They're servants of Christ. They serve his word. They're stewards of his mysteries. The mystery is his word. And we are to regard them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, look what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. And what's the last phrase? And do what? And give instruction. He says, I, he says, we request that you appreciate these people. So there is a proper esteeming of, of someone who teaches the Word of God. And it's within the guidelines of Scripture. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. I love this verse. <laughs> You'll see why in a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Again, within the guidelines of Scripture, we are to appreciate those who teach the Word of God. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of what kind of honor? Double honor, I like that. Especially those who work hard at what? Preaching and teaching. Now that's within the bounds of Scripture. Take care of them, encourage them, appreciate them. There is a regard that is biblical and scriptural for people who teach the Word of God. However, Glory always goes to God. It never goes to man. You don't exalt the man. You appreciate the man. And the scripture gives you the guideline. But when you start exalting the man, then what's happened is you have exceeded that which is written. And this is never allowed. And so Paul says, hey, to help you understand, I've taken Apollos and myself. We're the example. So that you might learn with us not to exceed that which is written. And the sin of exceeding that which is written, being indifferent to what God has to say. You see, they could have cared less. And Paul is, is going to zero in on them now. And, he, and he's showing them how, how conceited they've become. They don't care what Paul is saying to them at this point. But what he's telling them is, he says, listen guys, as a result of your exceeding what is written, you have become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. You know what the word arrogant is? It's the word Fusio, P-H-U-S-I-O-O, has the meaning of to puff up, to inflate, to blow up. When somebody's arrogant, all he is is a big old gas bag, that's all it is. Just a bigger bag of wind, that's all he is. And that's what, that's what he says you've become. You've become people that are arrogant. You, you've puffed yourself up, you've inflated, you have an inflated view of yourself. And you have an inflated view of the people who've ministered to you. And to show that, you've attached yourself to them instead of attaching yourself to Christ. And therefore, you have exceeded that which has been written. 
You say, no, Wayne, I would never do that. Well, now be real careful that you're not, be real careful in what you just said. If you're not, if you're going to stay within the bounds of Scripture, you can appreciate godly people and realize they've been given to the church. But if you step outside the guidelines of Scripture, you're going to forget what they say and attach yourself to the man and you've just sinned against God and become indifferent to what God's Word has to say. I have an evangelist friend. First name is Sonny. He's a good friend of mine. I'm, I'd tell you his name, but that's not going to do any good. Bill Stafford knows him well. And little Bill. And he was preaching in a meeting out in Texas, and I was preaching with him. Great man, and he has a wonderful gift of preaching, has a wonderful message to share. But he has a following, <laughs> and that following makes everybody uncomfortable. I've even been in certain places, and I, and I kind of feel uncomfortable because this following, they always listen to that man preach, and then when anybody else gets up and preaches, they walk out of the room. They never stay for the next one because they are of sunny. And he had this one particular man at the conference that year when we were out there. Oh, my goodness. This guy, I found out later, had followed him everywhere. Wherever Sonny was preaching, he would try to be there. No matter how much money, no matter when it was, he was of Sonny. And Sonny got up to preach. He was preaching on the ten plagues of Egypt. And he got over to that part about the frogs. And this fellow, the whole time he was preaching, had a monotone voice. And I, I guarantee you, it was so he could be heard. And he would say, that's right. That's right. Preach it, brother. No, not preach it, brother. I had no inflection in his voice at all. It was all monotone. That's right. That's right. Preach it, brother. Matter of fact, we'd had trouble all week long with the young people who were there that week because they pick up on stuff like that real quick. In fact, <laughs> they had a devotion one night in the cabin uh, to try to get the young people to repent of making fun of this guy all week long. You know, every, and I wasn't in the room at the time. <laughs> I happened to be out messing around. And I could, they, they turned the lights off, repented, asked God to forgive them. And I walked in the door and I opened it and I said, that's right, preach it. You know, <laughs> killed. <laughs> it killed the whole devotion. <laughs> but this particular guy, I remember he got on the plague of the frogs. And he said, when he said something about frogs, he said, and all the Cajuns loved it. You know, I mean, if you've never been down to South Louisiana, you don't know what he's talking about. But all of a sudden, it began to be very obvious to all of us, here was a man follower. He wasn't even paying attention. He, he even said amen at the wrong place. Have you ever heard people do that? They're so much enthralled in the man and how he's preaching, they're not even listening to what he says. And he talks about Judas going out and hanging himself. That's right, brother, amen, preach it to us. I mean, it's, it's amazing some of the things they'll amen and don't even have a clue what was being heard. Now, be real careful. You may have already slipped into this trap. You see, when you're of a person and you go and exceed the scriptural guidelines of appreciation of that person and certainly treating them with a matter of respect and honor, but you move to exalting that person, you have just taken upon yourself the Corinthian mark of being a conceited, arrogant bag of wind. That's what you are. And you no longer are a person who loves the Word. You become indifferent to the Word. You'd rather hear the people who preach the Word. That's what was going on at Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is nailing them. And he said one of the first characteristics of a conceited people, an arrogant people, is that you're indifferent to the Word and that is shown by the fact that you don't just appreciate the man, you go beyond and exalt the man and that is sin that's exceeded that which is written. The second sign of a conceited church is ungratefulness. That's the second sign. Un, 
gratefulness. And, and it's specifically ungrateful for the people God has used to get them to where they are. Somebody told me a long time ago that humility is when you give credit to people that God has used to get you where you are. That, that, that bottom line, none of us are self-made. We're God-made, and God uses people in our lives. God had used Paul. God had used Apollos. But these people at Corinth, they were fighting over who was going to be of whom and never stopped to think of how grateful they should have been for the people that God had given them to bring them to where they are. It says in verse 7, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not, had not received it? Now, let's walk through that for a second. He says, for who regards you as superior? That's a good question. <laughs> who put you in this class? Who put you as superior to other men? Why is it you have the right to judge preachers when others don't? Why is it you have the right to act the way you're acting? You see, they had put themselves into a class all by themselves. It wasn't a class that God had put them into. They would put themselves into it. And he says, and what do you have that you did not receive? Yeah, that's an honest question, isn't it? Let me ask you a question now. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, Brother Wayne, I'm a successful businessman, and buddy, I put my time into it, and I deserved it. Wait a minute. You received the health that God gave you to show up at work every day to do what you did. You received the ability to think that God gave to you to make the decisions that you made. You see, everything we have is substantial. It's something that we have received. And if we'll just be honest about it, our IQ, <laughs> our, I won't talk about that long, <laughs> our IQ, um, our personalities, our shape, our size, our parents, but that's not what he's talking about here. The context is very narrow. The context has to do with spiritual things that you've received. And the Apostle Paul is asking them a question. Why is it that you act so arrogant as if you somehow don't have to walk by faith as if you can go around judging preachers by your own standards, as if you can live this way, what is it you have spiritually that you didn't receive? You're acting as if you got it yourself and didn't receive it that God gave to you. Any believer with honesty would have to say that all that he has that's meaningful in Christian life has been received. Look over in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. What a tremendous verse this is of what we've received from God. And why it is that the Corinthians could not see this, you see, they'd just chosen to be indifferent to the Word, and that'd be, that reflected an ungrateful heart that they had. They didn't realize they didn't get there on their own. Matter of fact, sometimes we forget what it's like to be lost. Who was it God used to get to you with the Word of God and the Gospel? You know, if we just think back in our life, man, I remember when I first came to Chattanooga, some of the doctrine I was preaching, and I have prayed many times that God will burn those tapes. I, we can't find them right now, and I'm not looking for them. If you find them, you burn them. <laughs> Some of the stuff I said is completely off the wall. I did not know how to study the Word of God. In fact, I was using everybody else's notes. If Stephen Olford or Adrian Rogers would have died, I'd had to quit the ministry because I was using their outlines. Now, I'd change them. I'd run them through the mill of my own life. I wouldn't use their illustrations because I'd put my own there, but that's all I knew. I preached topically. And then one day, I kept passing by a sign that said, reach out. <laughs> now it's pre-self ministry, but I saw this reach out Bible study. I said, what in the world is that? And Diana said, well, why don't you drive up there and check? And you know, I'm usually uninhibited in things, but Diana really is more uninhibited in that than I am. She, she did. I didn't. 
And she got enrolled in a course over there and started taking the book of, of Judges. And I remember looking over her shoulder and seeing the difference it was making in her life and thinking, I'm jealous. I want what you have. And I began to realize I didn't know how to study the Word of God for myself. And so I began to do the homework, and that's how I learned how to study the Word of God, right there doing the homework with Precept Ministry 16 years ago in my life. And now today I am where I am because of the people God put in my life. I can only say... I received it. I didn't even know I needed it. And then one day I was struggling with my Greek. I took it in school. <laughs> I took it for a grade. I don't see Brother Sparrow. So I'm, oh, gosh, there he is. And, I, and, and I, took, I took Greek for a grade. I really did. And one day Brother Sparrow's came to church. I never will forget that. And as a matter of fact, it was like 31 degrees below zero that Sunday morning. And as he walked out, he said to me, preach the word, son, preach the word. And I said, yes, sir. I didn't know who he was. And somebody walked up to me behind me, behind him, said, you know who that was? And I said, who? He said, Dr. Spiros Zodiotis. And I said, you mean like in pulpit helps? <laughs> and they said, yes. I chased him down the parking lot and apologized to him that I didn't know who he was. And all of a sudden, he started coming to church. And through the graciousness of his heart, let me start coming over to his, to his place and start doing his radio with him for 10 years. And all those years and those times and those hours, of just sitting in there. And I still don't think I know anything, but I've learned a few things just by osmosis, just by being in the room. And God began to teach me more and more about how to interpret. And my gift was application. So here I am 16 years later, and somebody says, man, what did you do to get where you are? And I have to say, I didn't do anything. All I know is I'm just grateful to be where I am, and I've got to give the credit to where the credit is due. That's the thing. What have you, what do any of us have that we have not received? It's incredible how conceited and arrogant and bags of wind we can become when you step outside the reality that we don't have anything unless God gave it to us. And that's what he's asking them. That's the question. What do you have that you did not receive? They were proud, ungrateful. They boasted as if they had gotten this themselves. In verse 7 he goes on, he says, For who regards you as superior? For what do you have that you did not receive? Now listen, but if you did receive it, why do you boast? as if you had not received it. You know that word boast is kafkalme. We've seen it before. It comes from the root word ofken, neck. Why do you walk around with your neck stuck out like you got there on your own? You didn't get there on your own. It was because of the grace of God you are where you are. You see, the sin of pride is the epitome of ungratefulness. Matter of fact, if I remember the scriptures right, look over. Yes, look over in chapter 6 and verse 9 through 11. This is where they came from. And isn't it funny how quickly we forget it and we don't give credit to God and glory to God for the people that he used to get us where we are. And they were arrogant. They were self-conceited here. Look in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and I didn't write this, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were what? Some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's where they'd come from. Now, people who have come from that looks to me like they'd have a grateful heart. They don't have a grateful heart. They're living in that arrogance of thinking they got there on their own. And the Apostle Paul is just immediately dressing them down for this. And they deserved every bit of it. The sin of ungratefulness. 
Look over in the book of Judges for a second. Would you go back with me? Let's regress for a second. Back to the, when we studied the book of Judges in chapter 6. Remember the cycle of sin? You know why I went to Corinthians after going to Judges? Because it's the counterpart in the New Testament. Here's a nation that turned their backs against God. And here's a church that's doing the same thing. They won't grow up. They won't get up under the word. They've become conceited and arrogant. They're attaching themselves to the men and not the message. They're not appreciating what God is doing in their life. And in Judges chapter 6, remember how this was a very difficult time. The Midianites had come in for seven straight years. And it was the eighth year. And when they would come in, they would come in on camels. They discovered a camel was like a weapon because it could go for days in the desert and not have to drink any water. And they were coming in plundering. The people were so afraid of them, they ran up in the mountains and hid in the caves. And God's not going to tolerate this because as they cried out to him, he's going to raise up a deliverer. That's the pattern of the book of Judges. But I want you to see something he does before he goes to Gideon, before he takes the matter in his own hands, look what he does. In, in Judges chapter 6 and in verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and he said to them, this is the first time and the only time he does this in the whole book of Judges. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now watch. It was I who brought you up from Egypt. Now wait a minute. This is not the people he's talking to here. They're a second generation after Joshua. Couldn't have been them. It had to have been the generation before them. He said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all of your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But look at the last phrase. But you have not obeyed me. Don't you understand where you've come from? You see, this is the second generation. And they'd heard all the stories. And God said, do you understand that if it wasn't for my grace, if it wasn't for my love and my mercy, you'd still be back in Egypt in a Hebrew slave camp? But because of who I am, I have taken you out, and this is how you show me your gratitude? He says, you will not. You have forsaken me. You will not obey me. You see, the root of all sin is ingratitude, when a person is ungrateful. And that's exactly one of the characteristics of a conceited church. A church that says, we got here on our own. We didn't need anybody else. Not grateful for the people that God had used in their life. Not willing to admit what they have, they received. And they boast as if they had not received it. Well, we have indifferent to the Word of God, ingratitude. And the third characteristic of the, of the conceited church is self-complacency. Self-satisfaction or self-complacency. Look at verse 8. And this is very sarcastic. It's an, it's an irony here of how Paul does this. But it's real sarcastic, and they deserved everything he said. It got their attention. Let of the Holy Spirit, look what he says. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings. And then the indictment, without us? <laughs> and I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. And I struggled with this verse for quite a while, but it's, it's obvious to me that he's being very sarcastic and very pointed in what he's saying here. Do the first couple of phrases remind you of anything of the church of Ephesus in Revelation when he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? That's exactly the way they were. The church of Corinth was the same way. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 8 is using that, that, like I said, that sarcastic way of getting their attention. Corinth, the rich city, had infected the church. They were self-satisfied with what they had. They were living as if they were already in the millennium and already had received their rewards. They lived as if they had even had the right to judge. And that's not any man's right. That's God's right. So look at verse 8 again. He says, you are already filled. The idea of being filled is that you have an, an abundance. You have an overabundance. In other words, have you ever sat down to eat and you've eaten and eaten and eaten and eaten and then somebody brings some more food in front of you and they can't give you anything because you're already full? That happened to me, by the way, Saturday. <laughs> I just happened to remember, I, Dinah makes the best toasted cheese sandwiches when she puts them in the oven. Now, she made something that I had to eat with a fork, but I mean when you put them in the right place and put the right stuff on and I had a big old bowl of soup. Isn't it wonderful when you have peace in your home? It's better than a steak. That's what Proverbs says. It is eating that. I had a big old bowl of soup and about three toasted cheese sandwiches and about three-fourths of a big 17-pound bag of tater chips. I don't know how big it was, but it was a big old bag of tater chips. And I had some, I don't know what else I had, but anything else I could find that I ate along with that. Oh, it was good. But I ate at 2.30 in the afternoon. And then Chris, Diana's sister, called and said, let's meet over at uh, Gondolier at the pizza place. Let's eat over there because it's cheap, you know, and you need to get two for one. And so we went over there to eat. And, I mean, it wasn't but about two and a half hours later. And here I am sitting there, and I love pizza. Oh, I love pizza. I wake up sometime thinking about how I love pizza. And they bring this huge pizza, and they put the pizza in front of me. But I was so full, I couldn't eat anymore. And that's what he's saying to me. He said, hey, guys. You're already filled. Nobody can feed you anymore. Nobody can give anything to you. Folks, I've preached to churches like this. They think they know it all. They've already arrived. They're not grateful for anything. They're not living up under the Word of God. That's Corinth. They deify preachers instead of listening to the message. And they sit there when you start preaching like they fold their arms and say, all right, big boy, tell me something I hadn't already heard. And it's amazing sometimes that God hadn't led me just to shut my Bible and leave. Because they're already full. Nobody can feed them. But then he goes on. He says, you're already filled. We got that picture. Then he says, you have already become rich. You've already become rich. Now, how he means that becoming rich, of course, the wealth of Corinth was well known. But I think what he's saying here is, since you have everything, nobody can give you anything. You have need of nothing. You're already rich. You're already full, you see. That's that conceit. That's that arrogance. You can't teach me. I'm already there. Well, we run into it overseas. It's incredible. And people come out of these, they got doctor's degrees hanging off their shoulders, you know, and they think, we already know it all. We're already full. We're already rich. And then he says, you've become kings. You enjoy the honor and prestige of kings. They were living like kings as if they already had their crowns. You're already ruling and reigning. Who can offer you a crown? Who can feed you? Who can give you anything? Who can offer you a crown? You've already made it on your own, he says. And the burning indictment of that verse to me is, you're already filled, you've already become rich, you have become kings, how, how? Without us. You don't need us. You never did believe that you needed us. You haven't understood yet that God has used us as a vessel to get you to where you are. The Corinthians were living in an illusion. They were complacent, self-satisfied, disobedient, and ungrateful. Christ in his wisdom could not appease their hunger or their thirst. They couldn't be filled because they lived as though they were already full. And they didn't even need the apostles. They just attached themselves to men. They didn't need what they had to say. They got there 
on their own. I have a friend of mine that was having some trouble in his church, and I get a lot of people call me about that quite often. Or when I'm in a meeting, they sit down and talk to me about it. He said, Wayne, I've got a group of people here that's fighting me. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm teaching the Word of God, but they're throwing it right back in my face. And he said, one lady came to me, and here's the statement she made. And see if you've ever heard this before. <laughs> it may be somebody you know. No, it wasn't here. But here's what the lady said. She said to him with that face that was all, the countenance was she hadn't been with God in 10 years. I mean, but she looked at him, and she said, young man, we were here before you got here. And we'll be here when you leave. And you better watch your step. Welcome to the church of Corinth. That's exactly what he's dealing with. You're already full. You're already rich. You're already kings. You don't need the apostles. You know it all. You're not grateful in your heart, he's saying. Well, then he turns to reflect. And I think this is even sarcastic too. I can't prove it, but here's what he says. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. <laughs> I wished you were there. I wished you were kings. As if, <laughs> I think he's saying here, he's indicating that they had reached such dizzy heights. He really wished they had without the help of the apostles. They were arrogant and conceited. And it's almost like Paul sarcastically says, oh, that we could have a humble place by your side those apostles that we are, not wanted and not needed. The characteristics of a conceited people, indifferent to the word, they exceed that which is written. They're ungrateful and self-satisfied. This is Corinth, the New Testament equivalent to me of judges in the Old Testament. And the only reason that they were where they were was because of God's grace and the people he had used to get them where they were. And I've said many times when I get to heaven, if there's any crowns, I'm going to have to give them to Brother Sparrows and others before we give them to Jesus because of the people God used to help me get to where I am. And that, that is overwhelming to me. I hope it's overwhelming to you where you are tonight. Because you see, ingratitude, indifference from God's Word, when you start exalting men instead of God, you've exceeded what was written. And that ungrateful spirit begins to cut in. And then it just continues to spiral from that point on. Self-complacent. You're full so nobody can feed you. You're rich so nobody can give you anything. You're a king so nobody can crown you. So therefore, you have need of nothing as the church of Ephesus in Revelation 3. But in reality, blind, naked, impoverished, and can't see it. Well, I'm glad I'm not preaching to a conceited church. <laughs> but we need to be aware of falling into that trap of arrogance. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.